Welcome to Queensway Pentecostal Church, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. Well, good morning, Queensway. So glad that you're with us today. What a great day to be together. And uh, I'm looking forward to the day where we can actually look at each other face to face. But here we are today. This is pretty good. Coming to you uh, live on a Sunday morning real good. Uh, Today is a special day. And uh, I say that because today is an opportunity. It's uh, our goal to learn. And uh, as you know, if you've been watching the news, some of you are avid news watchers. Uh, There's been a lot going on in our world the last few weeks. We touched on it last Sunday, but today I wanted to do something a little different. Before we get into that, I want to just share our scripture verse for today. This is really going to be a theme for these days as we journey through these uh, discussions on race and biases and all sorts of things in our world. It comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Says this, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's Micah 6, verse 8. You know it so well. Like many watching uh, this morning, I spent the last week watching and listening to the news uh, and all the protests going on across our world where people are calling out injustice towards black people from across uh, every country, every uh, continent in our world. And obviously it's so important in this time. Uh, This is a very complicated issue. I know for many of us it seems simple. We just need to do what's right. But these issues are so entwined into our culture, into our societies. It seems simple to some to figure out. But as a world, we need to listen to our black brothers and sisters Our black family, I personally think that it will take a focused, systematic effort from all levels of government and community leaders to see that change we all desire to see. It's going to take all of us, every part of society, it's going to take every single one of us to see change. You see, this is a reckoning moment even for the church, for our church, for churches across our nation. We must change ourselves. We need more diverse churches with more diverse people in leadership. That's a call for the churches in Canada, I believe. There's no more excuses, no more waiting for another day. We'll deal with that next week kind of thinking. We'll deal with it another hour. The truth is now is the time for us to stand up and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord and in our brothers and sisters. You see, to any pastors hearing me say this today, we must change and focus our attention from ourselves to people whose background is different. I hope there's maybe one or two pastors checking this out today. It it goes beyond black people, but to women and having churches that actually reflect the communities that we serve and how many of our churches are in communities, but they don't necessarily reflect the communities around them. As white people, we need to stop talking and start listening to those around us. If you are a white person, you have white skin like me, don't say things like, I'm not a racist, and then begin to speak on how noble you are or whatever. It's time for us just to listen. I plead with you today to just listen. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to listen. I've tried my best to listen, and 
uh, not speak lately. It's harder than I thought to just listen. So when I was thinking about this Sunday, about how we'd gather here today, I knew that we didn't need to hear more people. Uh, we didn't, you didn't need to hear more from me, excuse me, but we needed to hear from people that matter, people that have a voice. I asked Ray Harris, who along with his family are a part of our church congregation here at Queensway, to join me today. And I, I want us to hear from him as he shares his perspective on the events in recent days. I want us to listen closely, open our hearts, and be ready to learn. I want us to lament, to listen, and then to lead. Let's hear from Ray today. Well, church, today we have Ray Harris. He's a part of our church family here at QPC. He and his family come to our church, and uh, he so graciously uh, joined me this morning. And we're just going to talk about some of the things going on. He, I just shared with us about what's been going on these last couple weeks. And uh, I wanted to hear from Ray. I wanted our church to hear from Ray. So he's here today. And I'm gonna, Ray, I'm going to ask you a few questions. And yep. uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about your story through this time. So uh, my first question for you is this. Um, if you can kind of take yourself back, I know you weren't uh, born in Canada, but uh, when you uh, first came to Canada, your experiences with uh, Canadian culture and specifically your experiences with uh, racism in Canada over the time since you've been living here all these years. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, my dad migrated and in the early, early, early 70s. And then a couple of years later, about 76, he brought uh, myself and my younger brother and my mom over to Canada. When we got here, obviously, it was a culture shock coming from a country where it's very, very, very warm. On an average, we're getting maybe 28, 34 degrees, uh, you know. And so snow, believe it or not, it was something that we look forward to, the coming and, you know, we, you know, and uh, going outside and playing with the snow. So when we came here... Um, that was the only thing we got to get ourselves assimilated into a schooling system. So I remember my youngest memory, we were the first Afro-Canadians, if you want to say that, in uh, in Scarborough, where we were, uh, you know, and on the, all the rest of the kids in the school were all, you know, they were all white. And we were there. Um, it, some of them, you know, they were... You can understand. I guess my best description is, I really say that they came up from good, strong Christian upbringing to know that there's love for one another, and a good majority of them, it was just probably learned ignorance. I would say, uh, because you know they would make fun of me because of the color of my skin, and you know, so I never really took it on. Uh, to heart, you know, it's just, I guess, you know, the good Lord embellished me with strength to deal with it in that format growing up, you know, so it was, it was, it was hard because, you know, I, I got some friends, I had very good friends, a couple of them that I know to think back going through the years that uh, were white, but a good majority of them, you know, and I could see the ones that were like that, they didn't have a good religious foundation, Growing up in Guyana, coming to Canada, you know, it's we came from a very strong religious foundation as a family, and my dad instilled and my mom instilled it in us as we grew up in uh, in Canada and in, in Toronto area where we first came in the Scarborough area, and you know we went to a church, and you know a lot of people I knew were there, 
but the ones that I knew that were the ones that were mean and were, were you know name calling, it came to volition that they really knew no better. It was, you know, now looking back to it and reflecting, it was a taught kind of thing. Uh, some of the words that I'm reflecting, I could hear them say, it's like, okay, well, this is somewhat of a ten-year-old saying these words. How? Could the ten-year-old formulate that kind of thought pattern? It isn't them, you know what I mean. At a young age, I was articulate enough to understand, you know. So, um, I mean, as an individual, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, myself out there, I'm very friendly with people, so I'm liked in that, you know, where that's concerned. But nevertheless, there was a few like that growing up, you know, into the into the younger years. Um, I remember we had a, a house, and it was, I guess, you you called it. Uh, these townhouses where the driveway was shared and I had this neighbor and he had uh, two sons one matching my age and my younger brother to me that was two years younger and we'd play together you know we'd play hockey they, we never knew anything about hockey so they landed us their sticks and we'd play and we'd play in the driveway and I know many many a days we'd be out there playing and you know his father would come home and you know he had this mean look on his face he wasn't very welcoming but the kids just would continually play with us we'd play together and you know i'd say you know we we grew up to learn to be respectful you know we'd say good afternoon never answered me <laughs> he kept going um and then another day would pass and i noticed there was a time of the void where i wouldn't see the kids come out and play and i'd be wondering you know what i mean um I'd go knock on their door. I didn't think anything about it. I didn't read into the fact. And, you know, um, they weren't answered. They're busy and the other thing. And we'd be playing, and my brothers would play on there because we would be used to playing on both driveways. So he decided one day to come up and put a barrier in the middle of the driveway, like these railway ties, about three feet high. So I took it as, okay, well, he doesn't want us playing on his driveway. And it was sad because, you know... Uh, we would play together at school, but at home, it's a different scenario. You know, and they, you know, as a child, you don't think of these things. The good Lord bless us, you know, we're innocent. Children are innocent of these things. You know, and, uh, you know, those are some of the things, you know, the earliest uh, part of growing up that you'd hear that, you know, along, you'd be in conversation, you'd hear things, you'd see things, you know, uh, you know, where younger kids are concerned progressing there on into teenage uh, teenage life when I started my first job that kind of thing um, one of my fondest memories was um, I was an air cadet um, a lot of people out there there's air cadets and it was very big and I was um, you know I was very good at, at what I did at the air cadet I was you know I applied myself and I remember when the squadron started it was very small we started probably with about 10 people and one of the earliest guys that started with me he was the first to start and he was a afro-canadian gentleman as well and he was the only one who's him and myself and so all the rest of the, the the squadron were um you know where people are white um i know a french canadian gentleman is there and so we excelled in a lot of things we did because that's just how we are in the caribbean you really put you're all into everything 
it's either all or nothing it, it, you know it kind of makes sense not doing it and that's how we were brought up so you know where it came to stuff like I ascended to the ranks where I was really good because it was an honor to be a flag bearer when any parades that we do I had parades in the middle of Young Street I had parade in, in, on, you know on, at the Legion and Remembrance Day and big parade in the university I, mean, I was a flag bearer because it was an honor because I was very you know I was very good at that and so once you start you start out of a, what they call as a flighter it's like a private per se and you do everything. We studied a lot of things. And one of the, the next step was to go to um, a junior leaders course where you apply yourself. I was actually stationed at Trenton. So I know Trenton Air Base very well. Uh, I spent an entire, as soon as school finished, I think we two weeks after we ended, but pretty well almost second week in July, right up until school started the week before. And so we stayed there, we housed there, and we drilled there with everything, and, you know, we learned a lot of things. That was one of the first uh, experiences I had with, with shooting. I learned to shoot there. I learned to shoot a rifle, and, I would, you know, I excelled pretty well. I was the highest marking there. We studied aeronautics. I was I'm marking that as well. Um, and so when you come back from that, when you, based on your grades, you're able to ascend to a higher rank. So, remember there was about 10 of us that started. Four of us went to the junior leaders course. Myself and one other guy, we had the top marks. The other two were below us. So, it was now time to get a what was a corporal. So, it was myself and the other guy, and he got it, and I was disappointed. I was like, well, you know, we were close in marks, and it just means to me I got to work harder. So... I worked hard, I, you know, in between that from junior leaders. The next step would be senior leaders where we'd have to go to Cold Lake, Alberta. So before that, more and more people came in and there was a, more, there was a need for a second corporal. So now, remember, the other two, they didn't mark as high as we did. There was quite a disparity, actually, between the two and myself and the other guy. And so the only... The obvious choice to me that was myself. There was nobody else in that uh, in that senior uh, you know category. So all the parades, I would be the first to be caught. All the other flights that came in after would look up to me. I already assumed the leadership role that I didn't even know. They would look to me, cadence, marking, all these things. It was me. So now that came to volition where it was okay. Well, we needed to have another corporal. When it came, I didn't get the corporalship, so um, a young lady got it who started after me. And when I asked and queried about it, well, we needed a female. We didn't have one at all in the higher rankings because it was all guys. And I took it as that. Um, preparing now was... You'd apply for your senior leadership to call it Code Lake Alberta because it's expensive to go, obviously. And uh, you do a lot of fundraisings to go, and your family would be able I was preparing to go there, and our squadron just grew tremendously. This is over a couple of years at the time, because it was it, the time frame I'm speaking of. It is a couple of years, it isn't like one, you know, so um, maybe four years in. And now, again, it was a call for another corporal because after corporal is master corporal. It was one from corporal and master corporal. I didn't think, okay, well, there's no way I'm going to get master corporal because it's the succession of things. And so, again, it came. And 
after the young lady got it, when I queried, I asked questions, you know, what could I do? I'm trying to improve. Maybe it's me. I'm thinking, you know, I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't this and the other thing. Um, but it was nothing negative in that format. It was like I said, we needed a female. And that was the answer from the head CEO. So he goes, you know, the next time, whatever, because like I said, anything, I was taking that leadership role. They would even send me to organize the rest of the flight because I was that higher. So the time came now for um, to prepare for senior leaders course. And all across Canada, they have rankings and markings and stuff, and I was one of the ones expected to go. The, the other fellow, who was, he was the highest ranking now because he was the first one, and he was the only two of us there. And we had a few other um, Afro-Canadians come in at this point. At this time, I believe we were probably about 50, 60 maybe in the squadron. It, it grew because it was a strong squadron. We had competitions and drill competitions. I was named because I had won awards because I was that good with the drill and that's because like I said it's a big big thing to hold that flag especially during my Burns Day parade and a lot of parades and stuff like that I was always named because you dress with white gloves and stuff like that your drill has to be down to the T you know where that's concerned and um, so I applied for senior leaders and it's about time to go um, in between that I had ascertained I had my gliders pilot's license I had done a solo with a twin engine already and I was very, maybe probably hours away from doing, had probably taken a test to get my license as a pilot. And at this time, I was approaching 17. So, um, yeah, because I started when I was about 12, 13. So now, again, like I said, it came time and they needed a corporal. And so once again, I was passed over. And this time, not even the other two, but someone else who didn't even go to junior leaders. And they gave him corporalship. And when I asked, it was a song and dance more than anything else. And, you know, that led me to, to quit and leave Air Cadets because of that. Because I'd asked people, I cried about it, I spoke to my pastor at church about it. I, I'd spoke to, and, you know, I'd spoke to different squadron leaders from another party who, who knew me because we compete and stuff like that. And they always see me and they always, I thought you'd be sergeant, my flight sergeant by now. Like, what's going on up there? I said, I don't know. You know, and I thought, you know, it was me, it was me, it had nothing to do with me. And, you know, that most I, you know, I could come up with, that was it. Yeah. I, I spoke in confidence to the higher up, to the uh, warrant officer that, uh, you know, because I knew him very well. Cause we started together at first original 10. And, you know, he says, you know, he goes, every time he goes in, he's asking, well, Ray has all the qualifications. He's next in line, but I'm being pushed over. You know, and I always think back what, what I put have been because as a transition from 70, you jump in 18, you automatically, based on your marks, you can go to the RMC Royal Military College where you study officer. I was one fitting in to go to RMC. And so because of all that, it just all that was thrown away in a sense. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you're obviously gracious, especially as a person gracious during these times. Um, I think to uh, some of the things that we've been seeing today, you know, uh, what's been going on with the police and uh, black people in America has been uh, challenging for me just because um, this has happened before. <laughs> This is not like a, a new thing by any means. Um, I'm optimistic that things will change, but you know, 
based on history, it's it's difficult to see. Um, so, I guess what I'm uh, what I want to hear from you is, you know, a lot of what's been going on has been between uh, police and black individuals. And have you seen that in your own life or in your friend's life, your family's life? Like, uh, have you faced situations? You know, in Canada, we often think, like, at least I'm guilty of this, to be honest with you, as much as anyone else. We often think, well, that's in another country. That's not That's not here. We're different here. And I, I think we are different, but that doesn't mean these things don't happen. Maybe you could share some insights into that in your own story or your friends and family. Yeah, well, you know, I have firsthand experience growing up through through now into adulthood and so forth. And the biggest thing is, is in the United States, being that my parents, my dad is a snowbird, migrated, got as far as Georgia, lives in the United States. I've had many trips down there. Um, in the United States, that systematic racism is in your face. It isn't hidden. It is prevalent and alive in Canada. And that's where I would say that it's more dangerous because it's not, it's, it's hidden per se, you know, in, in, in where Canada's concerned, right. just like the story with the air cadet. You know, after I had my driver's license, I've always worked hard, and that was one of the things uh, my father has always instilled with us. I've always had a decent job, you know, when I remember um, getting my driver's license, driving in Toronto as a young guy, you know, in the city, you, you have your friends, you're going out to parties or whatever. Um, driving along, and you see an oncoming police officer you're doing speed uh, you know I'm well aware of the laws one of the things I studied it was a first year of college I was actually wanting to pursue law you know I, I used to go and defend myself in, in tickets so I was well aware of all my rights as a Canadian citizen as a driver you know so far as well as the criminal code with the Ohio traffic act so I would see an oncoming police officer and they would see my face turn around and pull me over and the questions were not okay well good evening how are you doing um you were going a little fast uh your tail eyes out something of that it wasn't like that it was um where are you going right. what are you doing in this neighborhood do you live here what do you do for a living I mean, those questions, what does that have to do right. with the execution of his duty? Right. If, you're, if you were, you know, a, a disobeying a law or something, if you were speeding, no problem. You know, there was one instance. I remember another instance very well where I was out with some friends. And like I said, I've always worked hard. And, you know, the opportunity in Canada is great. Once you work hard, you can ascertain anything. I've always liked cars. I had a really nice car as a young person in my 20s. And I remember an officer stopping me, and it was actually in downtown Toronto, driving and asked me, um, where are you going? I said, well, why are you pulling me over? <laughs> I'm not speeding. I didn't run a stop sign. Right. You know, why? I don't have to tell you. That's none of your business. That was his response to me. Um, then the next question, whose car is this? Being aware of my rights, know that if he's behind me, he's ran my plates, he would know that the car believed to summon. So at that point, I said, here's my driver's license and insurance. You'll know whose vehicle is this. It's right there on it. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, so you're Ray Harris? I'm like, 
Yes, I am, sir. Uh, and you know, because respect is our answer. Um, what do you do that you can deserve to drive a car like this? That's the question I had. I'm like, okay. Another instance, I had uh, been out with some friends, made my way back home, went in the house, and I noticed before down the street, that, you know, an officer way back driving very slow. I didn't take nothing of it because it's, it's police presence supposed to be there to protect the society. You know, they're doing their job. But I'm in my house and I get a knock at the door. And when I answer the door, there's a police officer there. Um, yeah. Do you live here? Yes, I do. Is there anybody awake that can vouch that you live here? That's the question I had. I'm like, are you serious? I just told you I live here. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, outside of that, why are you asking me to get anybody else? And you know what I said? This is private property. I'm not waking up anybody to tell you that. Do you have a reason for asking me this? Do you have any probable cause? Did I break a law before I came in here? Right. I noticed you were following me from I don't know how long. Right. And now you come to the door, knock on the door and ask me if I live here and then for me to wake someone up to prove that I live here? I couldn't understand. I said, what sort of nonsense is this? I mean, at the time, my father heard a little bit of commotion. He came up and he woke up anyways. And uh, their response is that, um, that they got a report of someone suspicious around the neighborhood and it looked like me. And I turned and said, well... Can you describe what me looks like? <laughs> In, you said it looks like me. Who is this description? It's an ongoing investigation. We're not at liberty to say. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, so these are the things. And I have, you know, I've all, because like I said, I grew up, I had a lot of good white friends with yeah, me. Yeah. And, you know, being in conversation with them, they can't understand it. No. One night, I remember one of them was with me. And we were out again. And the officer comes and... Um, she came up and said, um, I asked, why did you pull me over? He goes, license registration. I said, okay. Here, sir. Give it to him. What are you doing in this neighborhood? And my friend then said, um, what's this got to do? What neighborhood? You shut up, he says to him. <laughs> I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to this boy here. That was the exact words that he used. I'm like, okay. And I said, you do know I'm aware of my rights. I don't care what right. The only right I have here is listening to me and what I say. That was his response to me. You know, so those kind of things, you know, you know I've had um, those kind of things happen. Uh, I had one of my friends that I knew actually very well. Um, he was actually beaten very badly by the police. We were, it was like a mall, like nothing like an Espanola mall per se. It had a restaurant pub attached to it, which was on the, the outside of it, you know. And um, so they had a cordon off area to park. And this young, uh, young gentleman, Afro-Canadian gentleman, I, I knew him because I, at one point we were always envious because he had a really good job. He worked with uh, the Havlin, I think it's called, the Air Force. And his job, he would screw in little 
was he made a lot of money for a young guy in his 20s and see he bought i remember when the ford mustang 5.0 first came out beautiful he had spent thousands of dollars on the sound system and lights and really nice so we were in we were in the uh, in the design club apparently well just in front of it you're allowed to park on the other side you're not allowed to park and say fresh go or whatever so normally inside the dj would say hey please if it's overcrowded everybody wants to move their car so everybody's moving their car he went to move his car and they came straight to him and blocked out his car and he's trying to move he said get out of the car you're not moving no car leave the car right there we're taking this car tonight but why he says you know a young educated guy and he says no i'm moving my car everybody else is moving their car why aren't you bothering them right, right? he had his um is is actually his fiance with him at the time and and she was a white girl so he uh she jumped up in front of him and says no i'm moving this my car why are you bothering anybody else why are you bothering him and i remember i was nearby and i heard this yelling at her and dehumanizing her and calling every nasty name you can think what are you doing with a piece of and like that with the, you know i'm like wow and she was in tears and so he's he's decided he's you're moving his car cuz everybody else the car beside him had just moved and they came and grabbed him and threw him up against the car handcuffs with him and say he's under arrest and he said okay fine uh you know they's on on their arrest whatever the case may be he's going to go and they're going to be sorry um because he had a sister who was a police officer i think it was in peel at the time this is in um this was in the hopefully area and so he goes he's aware of and she was higher ranking so you know he's aware of his rights and stuff like that and anyway i want your bad number what for and i don't have to give you nothing i heard i couldn't i was hearing this plain as day and so they didn't like his response to him so they threw him in the car and said they're taking him to the police station and they took off well we were decided to follow them and another officer came and cut us off couldn't follow but i knew we were sent word with other people to the police station it didn't get there and another person inadvertently had been in behind the mall their dumpsters were the parking and they took him behind there and they beat him and they beat him i remember he was in a coma for a good while uh, a lot of ruptured organs and stuff like that and um yeah those you know uh yeah and like i said at first hand i was a very close friend of mine that i knew yeah. and you know when it you know talking about it and stuff you know hearing about it uh all we think of it they were jealous of the car or whatever the case we don't know but you know those are some of the things that y- yeah. you face you know and like i said i've had it i faced it on this side of the border and the american side driving over you know when you live close to a border city like toronto and, and some other place you drive over to you know in the old days everybody used to drive over to buffalo to go shop or you know go over to michigan to go shop and it was you know something i remember uh, the first time going over going shopping with a girlfriend of mine we had time in crossing the border and the border patrol gentleman asked me um where are you going and i said we're just going to do some shopping at the outlet mall in niagara falls and he goes okay um how long have you been there are you going to be there i said probably going to be there you know a couple of hours anyways grab some dinner or whatever um have you ever been in trouble with the law i said no sir i don't have a criminal record actually i'm on the other side of it you know um he goes whose car is this and i said mine can i have some proof that it's your car 
And, you know, she was asked, my girlfriend at the time, she was, you know, she was very vocalizing herself, like, you know, why, why are you harassing us? Either you shut her up or we will. <laughs> that was what the conversation was. So, I'm like, calm down, honey. Okay, well, here's what you do. Drive the car over there and wait. An officer will be out, come and see you. So, I drove the car over there. I waited. I think she came out of the car because she it was hot. It was summertime or whatever. But she came out, and that was where they came with two other officers. There was three of them now, and they were just. She was crying. They were dehumanizing her, and you know this and the other thing. What are you doing with him? And da 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 da. And then, uh, so they told me, okay, well, drive this car into this garage. It's, it was straight ahead of me. I, I figured, okay, I don't know. I said, why? We don't have to tell you why, just do as you're told. So I drove the car into the garage, and I remember big garage door, one closed the, behind me, one closed in front. The officer, um, they want me to get out of the car. Okay, I did. And now another officer came, and the four of them, they took me uh, into a, a room just as adjacent to it, and then told me to empty all my pockets, and they put everything on the table there, and from there, step into this room. I thought nothing of the room. Well, the room was jail. It was a I looked, it was thick glass, and I look up, and it's like 40 feet, and there's nowhere. Even. And, you know, I'm thinking, because I'm hearing... A, and that even at that at those years you were hearing horror stories in the United States. I'm like, okay, are these guys are gonna do something to my car. Do they not like me? Are they gonna plant something in my car? Um, they ripped my car apart. I remember I spent money had a nice stereo box system in the back. They ripped it apart, and they came out and uh, said, uh, "Okay, get on your way. Uh, nothing else. Just get on your way." And you know, I had to put everything back together in, in regards to that. You know. Well, church, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation about this topic, about race, about how black lives matter. And I appreciate your listening today as we've taken the time just to hear from Ray, hear his story, hear about his experiences. And we're just so glad to be able to do that. So thanks so much for joining us today. Have a a great Sunday. We'll see you next week as we continue this conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at qpcespanola.com.